0: And now to hear God's word from Revelation chapter 13, continuing our study in the book of Revelation, pay close attention. This is God's holy word. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. And as we consider these things that you have signified to your servant, John, you've spoken them in the language of symbol. So may we understand the symbol and the story, the narrative of your word, that we might interpret these things clearly and correctly. So fill me with your spirit that I might articulate these things well. And I pray that you would deliver us from error, deliver us from distraction, but lead us by your spirit into truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Whenever you go to the state fair or you go to a carnival, there are all kinds of rides and games. and. You know, however, you can't just walk up to the guy at the tilt-a-whirl and hand him a $5 bill and get on the ride, right? Uh, You can't go to the bumper cars or the ring toss and just pay the guy money and let your kids do the thing. It doesn't work that way. Oh, it probably costs $5, sure, but those guys don't take the money. You have to go stand in line at the booth to get a sheet of ride tickets if you want to do anything other than... Eat a fried Twinkie or go look at the cows in the, you know, agricultural tent, which is fun. It's great. It's a lot of fun. But if you want to ride the tilt whirl, you need a ticket. And you get a ticket at the booth. So you trade money, which is good anywhere, for these tickets that are only good at the tilt whirl and the bumper cars and the and the other thing. So you have these tickets that are, are good for this specific place for this specific thing. And the carnival people know how to work it. I mean, don't 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 underestimate them. They know how to work it, so you're always either left holding a couple of tickets at the end of the day, or you don't have enough to do the thing that you want to do. So you're, you're at the end of the day and you got two tickets and this other ride your kid wants to do is four tickets. Well, I need two more tickets, let me just buy two. No, you can't buy two, you gotta buy five. Uh, and it always works out. So where you're, you're always uh, coming up short, you're always left holding something. Or maybe you take your two tickets and go buy three dull darts and throw them at a little wrinkled balloon to win a knockoff SpongeBob. Maybe you could do that. But you know that game is rigged too. And you realize since you arrived that this entire experience has has been well-engineered to separate you from your money ever since you walked through the the door. Now, imagine entering an environment similar to that and being exposed to con men and swindlers when you're just trying to be faithful to the covenant of God and to worship God. This is similar to the environment of Herod's temple that stood in the first century, the temple that stood during the ministry of Jesus. Now, I don't mean to trivialize the activity around the temple by comparing it to a a carnival, but honestly, I don't believe I can trivialize it any more than the people at the actual temple in the courtyard doing their business. They were deprecating the worship of God by what they were doing there. And if you were a faithful Jew who had traveled from afar to go up to the temple at one of the feast days You encountered a well-orchestrated system surrounding the temple designed to separate you from your money. You remember Jesus called the temple a den of thieves. Why did he call it that? He wasn't just being creative with insults. It truly was a safe haven for all kinds of exploitative business practices. Remember, there were money changers there. Jesus threw out the money change. Why are there money changers at the temple? Well, in the first century, vast numbers of Jews came every year to Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, Acts tells us. Acts 2 says they were there from every nation under heaven, and they brought with them considerable sums of foreign currencies. So if you came from afar to make a sacrifice, you wouldn't bring an animal with you on a long journey. You would wait to get to the temple to buy a sacrificial animal once you got there. And there was this whole market of animals for you to buy. But in order for you to buy them, you had to first trade your foreign money, many of them with uh, images of foreign gods on them. You had to trade your foreign money, your unclean money for shekels, uh, at the silver, for, for temple silver, temple shekels, pure silver, you, you, you spend pure silver at the temple. And a, there's a good principle there. So there were tables set up selling silver, and they would take whatever money you brought from home and they would exchange it for temple silver, though they would charge a premium. And they would set the exchange rates for your currency at whatever they wished, whatever they think that they could get. Now, ordinarily, if these these are not these are not awful systems, these are not terrible things. Ordinarily, if these men loved their brothers and they loved the 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 strangers and pilgrims who came up to Jerusalem, they could use this as a, an opportunity to serve God. They could have made a living, but they could have served God, and there would have been no trouble. The cattle market is not what defiled the temple. That's not what makes Jesus angry. The, the fact that there was a table that you could trade your foreign money for silver was not in itself a corruption. But in this place, as you can imagine, where so much money is changing hands and piling up around worship and around the life of Israel, if you want to be a faithful Jew, you have to enter into this environment. It becomes a place ripe for all kinds of abuses to take place And they did, there were all kinds of abuses. All that money laying around meant that now loans could be offered at punishingly high interest rates, which God's law forbade. You don't earn interest off the poor. You don't charge usurious uh, interest, but they did. And there were also those who skimmed off the top at every turn. Every time money changed hands, there was some money coming off the top. Crooked priests plundered even the temple tithes and offerings. They took their portion of those offerings. They embezzled the Lord's own treasure house. In Mark's gospel, he said, Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers and those who sold doves. What did Jesus have against those who were selling doves? Doves were an acceptable animal sacrifice for poor worshipers, but at least one contemporary Pharisee rabbi wrote that the price of doves were artificially inflated. The prices for doves were artificially inflated. They were taking advantage of the poverty of their brothers. You don't take advantage of the poor in his poverty. Well, now imagine traveling a long distance to come to the temple, to pay your tithes, to present your sacrificial offerings. And you come with your family and you're greeted with this cacophony of men hawking and shouting and barking about their rates and about their wares and about their loans. And the only way to do what you're there to do, the only way to worship God is to enter the system and to take part, to go to the table and trade your money and buy your things. And all of this is what Jesus rebukes when he twice visits the temple. It's not the worshipers who are guilty. Jesus commends the widow who drops her two mites into the treasury. When she gives up her pennies, Jesus commends her faith. Paul and the apostles, they go to the temple uh, to worship and to evangelize. The corruption was not the sin of the faithful people just trying to worship. It was the sin of all the powers that conspired together to defile the house of God and to defile the worship of God, and, and, the, and the people, the worshipers, were swept up in the spirit of Antichrist. They were swept up into what amounts to Caesar worship. They, they end up willfully following their leaders, going along with the crucifixion, saying, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. They're swept up in this. Well, we're in the middle of our study of Revelation and we're in this section where John sees the series of visions that map out the history of the time between the resurrection of Jesus And the destruction of the temple, the end of Israel in 70 AD. And John sees a vision of a woman clothed in celestial glory, about to give birth to a son, a dragon waiting to devour the son once he's born. The son is born. He's caught up into heaven. And from heaven, he fights against the dragon. Now, these symbols, as we've seen uh, for the last few weeks, are really easy to interpret. The woman is faithful Israel. The son is Jesus. The dragon is our enemy, Satan. And in the battle in heaven, the dragon is cast down to earth where he then summons a great beastly empire in his image. He, he summons an, uh, an empire from the sea, from the West, uh, which must certainly be the Roman Empire. And then there's another beast that we saw last week that looks like a lamb and has the voice of a dragon. And it has two great horns. And last week we dug into that symbolism as well. This beast must be apostate Israel, heretical Israel, Israel that left her king, left her Messiah. And this, the two horns of this beast must be Herod and the high priest who together produce an image of the beast, which is Herod's temple, which ultimately leads people not to worship God, but to worship the beast. In many significant ways, as we studied last week, the temple became a symbol of Rome's occupation, it became a symbol also of Herod's hubris and the corruption of the self-serving, theologically liberal, corrupt Sadducee high priest. All these forces conspire together in this unholy union to persecute the faithful, to steal from worshipers, to devour widows' houses, to bring suffering to the church. And here in these verses before us, we see that a significant feature of the persecution that's brought by this land beast has to do with trade and transactions and the mark and the number of the beast. And that's what we're gonna study today. And we're gonna just break it into three parts. Where does this mark go? Uh, What are the restrictions that this mark brings? And what does this number mean? And those are the three things we'll study today. So it's just these few verses that I read just a minute ago. In verse 15, the land beast freely puts to death anyone who will not worship the image of the first beast. And then in verse 16 and 17, There is a great restriction on the lives and the commerce of anyone who will not take the mark of the beast on their hands or on their foreheads. Now, this is not the first forehead mark in Revelation, nor is this the first hand and forehead mark in the Bible. In covenant terms, to have a name on your forehead is to be sealed and identified, to be associated with the one making the mark, to have union and communion with the one whose name you bear. And this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter six. You're well familiar with this text. In Deuteronomy chapter six, God pronounces his covenant name on his people. And he says this, listen, hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. This is, he's pronouncing his covenant name. Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart... You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now they didn't literally write his name on their forehead and on their hands. They didn't literally write out the law on their hands and their foreheads. But God is saying, I want you to remember what I'm telling you. And I want you to keep it so close to your thoughts and to your deeds, it's as if my word is written on your head, on your forehead, as if it's written on your hand, so that when you go to do something with your hand or you go to think something, it's informed by my law. You do what I say. My law is as if it were written on your hand or your forehead. And then also we remember at the the ordination of the priest, When you ordain a priest, the ram is sacrificed and you take the blood of the ram and you place blood on the right ear, on the right thumb and on the right big toe of the priest. And then the rest of the blood you sprinkle around the altar. And so all of your life is associated with the blood of the altar. Your hearing is consecrated. You listen to God's voice. Your hand is consecrated so you do what God says. Your foot is consecrated so that wherever you go, you're a representative of Yahweh in all that you do. And then you wear the diadem, you wear the crown on your head that says, holy to the Lord, right across your forehead. These marks on heads and hands and feet, on ears, they don't just appear in Revelation. See, there's a long history in the Bible of getting marked on your head and on your hand. And then in uh, Ezekiel 9, the Lord appears to the prophet Ezekiel, and Jerusalem is done for. Jerusalem is about to be uh, destroyed by uh, Babylon, and, and uh, the Lord sends an angel to spare from destruction all those who are sickened by the corruption of the city. So there are those faithful within the city of Jerusalem who the Lord wants to spare, and so the Lord sends his angel through the city with an inkhorn to mark the foreheads of the saints. This is in Ezekiel 9. You can, if you want to read this later, he marks the foreheads of the saints in order that when the angels of destruction come through, that they would spare the ones who are marked, just like the doorposts were marked in the Passover. So the heads of the saints were marked in Jerusalem. Uh, so, so, these markings on foreheads that 's a pretty familiar image throughout the Bible. So, when we get to revelation uh, it 's again uh, no surprise that we would get more of these marks in chapter seven um, Uh, verse two, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That's a reference back to Ezekiel. We're doing the same thing that we did back in Ezekiel and we're preserving these saints now. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. They were sealed On their forehead with a mark. Over in chapter 14, which we'll get to next week, uh, verse 1 I looked and behold a lamb standing on the Mount of Zion, and with him 144,000, having their father's name written on their foreheads. And then over in chapter uh, 22, uh, verse 3, Uh, as well. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the lamb of God shall be in it and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face. This is in the celestial, the end of the world. This is the kingdom. They shall see his face and his, his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no nightmare there. They shall need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. So, so the name of Yahweh inscribed on your forehead is a protection, it is a blessing, it is a, it is a seal, it is a, uh, it is a guard. So whether blood is applied to your head or arm or you have a diadem on your forehead or the name of Jesus is placed on your head in a symbolic way, like Jared and Amber had the name of Jesus placed on their head this morning, you wear the law of God between your eyes and you wear on your hand. Having God's name on you means that you are claimed by him. You're his subject. You have entered into the reality where Jesus is the king of the cosmos and you belong to him from top to bottom. Whether you literally have his name written on your head or not, if you're joined to Christ, his name is on your head. You are baptized you do not belong to yourself is the is the message you have put on Christ as Paul says in Galatians so you have his blood on your ear and on your hand and on your foot what you hear and what you do and where you go is all within the bounds of the covenant you follow him now that's the principle of God placing his name on your forehead and our enemy is a phony and he's a fake and he copies off of other kids work he can't create anything himself so he makes parodies and he makes counterfeits and now he has this attempt to mark out for himself his people oh yeah jesus you mark out your people watch this i'm going to mark out my people and he marks his own with his own satanic baptism which is a sign of the wholehearted obedience to the beast in thought and deed the, the mark is on the head and on the hand he owns your thoughts, he owns what you do it 's the mark of blessing and protection that comes from the beastly state it 's the mark of of rome 's total lordship of life on the recipient. so just pledge your allegiance to Caesar, submit to his rule, submit to his law, and, and apostate Israel went headlong into identifying with this beastly program, whether, again, they literally had his name tattooed on their forehead, it is as if they do. They they might as well have the name of Caesar or the name of the high priest or the name of Herod tattooed on their forehead. They gladly, voluntarily wear the uniform of the one that they belong to. Now, I don't know in history and I don't know of any time where there was a literal mark, but this is a symbolic identification with the name and the program of the beast. And they had better identify with him because without entering into this servile relationship with the beast, their lives are going to be disrupted. Uh, we read that they can't buy and they can't sell without the mark of the beast. What kind of, what kind of transactions are being referred to here? Well, you won't be surprised that this isn't the first time buying or selling is mentioned in Revelation either. There are other financial metaphors that this is a parody of. In the letter to the Laodiceans, back in chapter 3, verse 17, this is what the Lord Jesus says. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Jesus invites the Laodiceans to come to him and make some transactions, come to me and buy some things. Uh, place an order with me. Now, they don't literally come with a shopping cart and, and, and come place orders for gold and white robes and ISAV and pay their money and get these things. Jesus is speaking metaphorically about getting from him the things that you can only get from him. And this has to do with worship and prayer and asking him for what you need. These are spiritual gifts. He's the only one who can give you these things. And the only place you can shop is with Jesus. And then then in in, uh, chapter six, uh, verse six, there's another transaction in the third seal Their liturgical transactions are disrupted. Um, I heard a voice saying in the midst of the four creatures, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. In this judgment, oil and wine and bread are disrupted. If you don't have oil and you don't have wine and you don't have bread, you can't worship properly. Worship is, is disrupted. Um, you you need these things for worship. And so uh, there's a transaction that's halted with with the judgment. Later in chapter 18, which we'll get to in uh, a few weeks, Jerusalem is the harlot city who makes financial transactions with the world. And uh, there's more temple imagery in that as well. So what kind of transactions are being talked about when... You read, no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. What kind of transactions are we talking about there? Well, what is at the center of this vision of the land beast is the abuse of the temple. It becomes the image of the sea beast, it, it becomes, the, the temple becomes the heart of corruption. This buying and selling has to do primarily with liturgical transactions, specifically the transactions of the temple court, the money changing, the buying, the selling, the, the trading that, that's going on there. This is not something, by the way, that's imposed by the sea beast. This is not something imposed by Rome this mark has to do with the land beast. That's very significant. That's very important for your interpretation and your understanding of these things. This has to do with apostate Israel. After the crucifixion of Jesus, there is a great falling away as apostate Israel seals its fate. As God's new covenant is unveiled in its fullness at Pentecost, it's as if on a a separate track, a new corrupt counterfeit Jewish covenant is instituted within apostate Israel. There's a new Jewish religion after Pentecost. You reject Christ? Well, okay, come here and accept this whole sick, degenerate arrangement. You like how things are going down at the temple? Well, then come to the temple, come to the synagogue, come to the synagogue of Satan, put on this new uniform, take on the mark of the beast, and then you can enter. Now you can take part of this, but you've got to deny Jesus. You've got to deny, his kingship. You've got to deny that he's Messiah. And this is exactly what happens throughout the book of Acts. We saw several examples last week, but one significant event is that at the end of Paul's missionary journeys, Paul goes to Jerusalem to pay a vow at the temple but he wasn't allowed to be there peacefully. They wouldn't let him just do his business. They dragged him out. They raised all kinds of opposition accusations against him. They beat him. You can't go in there. You can't be part of this new heretical Israel unless you identify with our new creed. You gotta buy our ticket. You gotta get our pass. You gotta get our card that says there's no king but Caesar and Jesus is not our king. We're glad he's crucified. That is, the, that is the system that you have to enter into uh, to, to worship in this, in this apostate uh, is uh, Jerusalem uh, creed. You understand, though, the Lord Jesus doesn't put up any barriers to worship him, right? You understand that, that this is opposite. What Israel is doing with the temple post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, what they're doing is against What the Lord God himself has has said, it's against who Jesus is. Back in Isaiah 55, listen to this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Are you thirsty? Come here. I've got water for you. I've got living water. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. That is God's invitation. God's invitation is come freely and take what I have. Israel's invitation to the world is come enter this corrupt, demented, degenerate system and Take part in this, these transactions and, and participate in Caesar worship and, and, and nod your head when we say Herod is legitimate and that the high priest is doing good work and all this is just making sense and all this is just perfect. Just enter this and everything is going to be okay. Well, that's not, that's not the invitation Yahweh Himself extends. That's not the Im- invitation of Jesus. But you see, in first century Jerusalem, unless you buy into the system, you have to buy into the system of Herod and the high priest, and unless you do that, You are cut off from the economy of the temple. You are cut off from the life of the temple. Not only the physical transactions, but the spiritual transactions of the temple. Vows, purifications, tithes, sacrifices, celebrations, feasts, dedications. All of it is off limits to you unless you worship the beast. You must commit the same uh, hypocrisy and apostasy that the high priest, the man of sin, has committed. And then to drive this home, we get the number of apostasy. It's the number of a man, we read. Well, what man? What is is 666? 666, what does that point to? As we saw last week, this is the amount of gold that Solomon took into his treasury every year. It was 666 talents of gold, and he took that through heavy taxation. This is the only other place in the Bible that this number comes up. And and we've seen week after week the book of Revelation is a commentary on the whole Bible. We interpret Revelation through the rest of the Bible. We're not trying to figure out how many letters are in this president's name, or we're not trying to fight, figure out, you know, this is a, a Vladimir Putin. How are we going to get that all to match up to 666? That's not that's not what we're trying to that's not what we're trying to do. God's law forbade the king from multiplying gold, horses, and wives. And Solomon does all three. He multiplies gold and horses and wives. And then he takes 666 talents of gold annually. And that marks the beginning of his apostasy. It is the symbol of Solomon's power mongering. It's the symbol of his lust and his idolatry, which has turned him from wisdom. Solomon was the temple builder. The land beast in Revelation, which includes Herod, is the counterfeit temple builder. Herod, together with the high priest, controls access to the temple. Their temple is not a house of prayer for all nations. Their temple, the temple of Herod and the high priest in the first century, is a den of thieves and crooks, that's what Jesus called it. They have exceeded even Solomon's apostasy. They turn against the saints to make war on them. And and, and with the backing of the sea beast and under the authority of the dragon, they aren't protectors of the people of God. They have taken what was intended for Sabbath. They have taken what was intended for worship and they have used it for murder. They have used it for persecution of the saints. So, So after Solomon's reign, his kingdom was split in two and eventually his temple was in ruins. This was judgment on Solomon's sins and the sins he brought into the kingdom. Now, what's coming for this kingdom? What's coming for this temple of these new counterfeit Solomons? Until the day it is destroyed, participation in this doomed system means repeating the apostasy of Solomon. And Herod and the high priest, it means taking on the identity of the beast, wearing his uniform, speaking his language. And for everyone with eyes to see, a wide separation is being established between those who hold on to the old world and those who identify with Jesus. In in ordinary times, it can be really difficult to know what's right and what's wrong. It seems like in ordinary times and peaceful times, things are generally, uh, there's some gray and there's some... um, things are muddy. It can be hard to tell who is faithful and who is not. not. But in crisis times in history, we start to see clear separations between who is marked with the sign of the cross and who is marked with the sign of the beast, who is marked with the beast's identity. And even though this history in Revelation is what is outlined here in these chapters mostly takes place in the first century. Remember from John's perspective, he says, these things are very near. These things are soon to take place. These things are gonna take place shortly, even though there's still a great deal of instruction we draw from, from Revelation, just like you can read Noah. You're not, you're not, nobody told you to build an ark, but you can read Noah and you can understand uh, what, what God is doing through Noah, through Moses, through Jeremiah, through Daniel. So we can read Revelation and gain insight and instruction for our world today. And one of the many things that's revealed, and one of the reasons this book is a blessing to those who read it and understand it, is that in Revelation, we get to see our enemy's playbook. We get to open it up and get to see how he works and how he operates. Do you see now that the way that the dragon lashes out against the saints, the way the dragon takes out his rage against the sun is by drawing the state, the empire, together with apostate religion in order to accomplish his mission the dragon orchestrates cooperation between the beastly empire of Rome and apostate Israel to oppose the church. And he sets up things in such a way that your life is not gonna be normal. And you're not gonna be able to participate in the life of your people unless you uh, participate in the lie unless you take the mark, you wear the uniform, you aren't even going to be able to worship unless you participate in the lies. You have to worship the state and you have to submit to the apostate religion in order to come to the temple. So there must be a liturgical and religious dimension to the tyranny of the sea beast. He's got to get the cooperation of the apostates. Now, isn't that curious? Isn't that that strange? Why? does the dragon want the cooperation of apostates to accomplish his his mission? Why can't the dragon just set up a totalitarian regime to work out his purposes? Why does it seem that in all the worst rulers and all the worst governments in history, why do they tap into some religious zeal? Why do they employ religious language as well as they always gain willing cooperation of corrupt, compromised religious leaders, like we saw in the National Prayer Service this week, if you made the mistake of watching that thing. It was a parade of the worst, most heretical, damaged people. I mean, really messed up people in the name of Christ uh, uh, advocating for the worst corruption in in our world. Or, or if you listen to the opening prayer for, for Congress this year, why does the dragon want the cooperation of apostates? Why does he do this? Because The ultimate goal of of Satan's designs is false worship. That's what he wants. He wants to blaspheme God. Satan is not interested in much of anything unless he gets some blasphemy out of it. He's gotta get some sacrilege. Unless he can create something profane that assaults the name of Jesus, he's not really interested in in it. So all these agendas must be built with a false gospel. You've gotta bake in some tempting, bewitching lies that lead men to hell. Because the agenda is to create a corrupt state and a corrupt church so that they can gang up and deceive the woman and her seed and tempt them into false worship. The benefit to the dragon of including apostate religion is that it creates a fake legitimacy. It creates this heavy social pressure on the faithful to accept the lie. You look around at all these spiritual people, all these religious people who are diving headfirst into the worship of the beast, who are bowing down to the image of the beast. And you hear it, why don't you just go along? Just accept the lie. Just join in. Look at all these nice, decent people who have made the right choice. Allow yourself to be assimilated. Just let go of your bigotry and let go of your prejudices and allow yourself to be assimilated. You see, when the state has turned against you, and the prevailing religious culture has turned against you, it's as if the whole world is opposing you. And the assumption that you take is that I'm alone and I'm weak and I'm vulnerable and I'm wrong and I'm ignorant and I'm powerless. But the book of Revelation exposes that lie. And that's why the book is so popular with the persecuted church throughout history. So now as we've been going through these sections, there's been, there's been some parallels to several things that we're experiencing in our day, but I've been resisting the urge so much to draw straight black line connections. I almost feel like we need a decade to go back and, and, and process everything that's happening with us now. So my goal has been generally to offer some principles, knowing that you're gonna meditate on them and you're gonna make applications, but this is so on the nose. <laughs> I can't avoid some direct commentary. For many months, People have been on edge about the possibility of mandatory vaccinations, medical passports, social credit scores like they have in China, and assuming that any one of these things is the mark of the beast. You know, you're going to get an RFID chip in your forehead or in your arm, and and uh, what we can say is confidently, no, none of those things are the mark of the beast. And why can we say that so confidently? Well, number one, because whatever the mark of the beast is. Whatever form this took, the mark of the beast was something that happened about 1950 years ago. That's how we can say this. You don't have to fear the mark of the beast from Revelation. This was something that apostate Israel employed before the destruction of the temple. Secondly, just as we saw last week, the Antichrist has already come and gone. But John spoke of many Antichrists and the spirit of Antichrist. So there may be someone who is an Antichrist, a deceiver, a liar, an opponent of Christ, and there are many. By the same token, a mark of the beast, a sign, a uniform of the beast might still be employed here and there throughout history. But here's what we need to remember. It's not the evil empire that imposes it. It's not Rome that enforces this. This is not something that the state imposes. Who does this? It's the land beast. It's apostate. Israel, it's the apostate church. This mark is associated with heresy and apostasy. A mark of the beast is related to heretical, state-worshiping behavior in the church. And as the church turns bad, as the church puts up barriers between people and the worship of Jesus, or turns and persecutes faithful covenant keepers in the name of the empire, When the church says, you must buy the lie, you must drink the flood of deceit that flows out of the mouth of the dragon in order to worship, and if you refuse, your money, your worship, your presence is no good here, you're not welcome here, that is the mark of the beast. If you're looking for the mark, don't look at the state, look at the church, look at the apostate church. To pull this off, to harass and persecute the elect of God in this way, The dragon requires a contingent of covenant people gone bad. The apostate church must be complicit in this scheme. Now, do you see anything in our world today that compares to this situation? Well, I said crisis times reveal things and they show the separations. The last several months have been a real apocalypse for the church, a real revealing and unveiling. We see where loyalties and where allegiances lie not only on the issue of whether the state has the jurisdiction to tell the church how to worship and where and when it can worship, but also on issues like the false gospel of identity politics, the pronouncement of guilt on some that can never be atoned for, you have guilt that you can never be forgiven for, sins that can never be erased, and the pronouncement of innocence upon others who can never do anything wrong because of their overlapping intersections of oppression. It's a false gospel which cannot save. And so church in 2020 and 2021 means going to your kitchen table on Sunday morning, flipping open your laptop to watch your pastor take his nose rag off long enough to tell you that you're a racist. That's worship in 2021. And if I just want to be a faithful Christian, that's what I have to put up with to keep my membership vows. I'm in a position where I have to accept my church imposing on me the doctrines of Caesar and Herod which in many places results in the church not meeting at all. Did you ever wonder what the world would look like if the church just took a year off? If most of the church just stopped meeting? If a significant percentage of congregations just stopped gathering physically and stopped coming into God's presence with their prayers and petitions, stopped eating bread and drinking wine in God's presence? Did you ever think what what the world would look like? Now you know, we got that one, now we know. know. Got a dementia patient for a president and a guy in a bull costume standing in Congress and uh, people riding bikes in the free open air wearing hazmat suits. It's clown world, absolute clown world because the church isn't doing her job. The church is complicit in not obeying the Lord Jesus. It takes the participation of the church to pull this off. Pastors and elders are complicit in not leading toward obedience to Christ above all things. We begin not with a position of trust and faith and courage, but a position of weakness, and we have led the world into fear. We have been complicit in this, and I speak for the church See, the state and the culture can pronounce whatever they want to. Caesar and Herod can make all kinds of edicts. And maybe individual Christians have to go along with various aspects of the program just to have a job, just to live, just to get along. It's not until the church picks up Caesar's decrees and enforces them and uses them to create barriers to worship that they become the mark of the beast. It's not until the church participates. So what do we do? Well. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness and I'm thankful for your courage and I'm thankful for your resolve. Pray for the repentance of the church and use all the influence you have to encourage strength in other Christians, to encourage strength to worship and to obey and to stand against a mark of the beast or many marks of the beast that are prevalent. The church must be a defense. The church is the only institution that can light the way out of the nightmare that we have created for ourselves in this world. No other institution is equipped to do this. No other institution can. And we must continue to use all influence that we have to erect no barriers to fellowship with the Lord Jesus, no political barriers, no social barriers, no other barriers to fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I'm thankful for your faithfulness. I'm thankful for your courage. I'm thankful for your resolve. Continue, people of God, continue steadfastly under the banner of the cross, rejecting any mark of the beast. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to continue to strengthen us, not only against the frustrations and the obnoxious impositions and things that, that uh, our people have to deal with in work and, and in life and, and just trying to operate normally, but we, we pray that uh, you would guard us and protect us through whatever might be headed our way in the future. So we ask that you would be gracious to remove uh, all, all of the uh, restraints and restrictions and, and, and errors uh, from our lives and that, that impose and impress upon us, but uh, even more so strengthen us in the midst of this. Uh, Father, build us up and continue to strengthen your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.